Welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast where we'll uncover the timeless investment principles so you can escape the rat race, earn passive income and create lasting wealth. I'm Pete Wargent, investor and financial coach and I'm joined by Stephen Moriarty, private investor and the co-author of our new book, Low Rates High Returns. In each episode of this podcast, we talk about the crucial concepts around managing your own money, how to invest, when to invest and the key lessons we've learned along the way about generating passive income. The things we discuss in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice, and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Enjoy the show. G'day, welcome to the Low Rates High Returns podcast with me as always, Pete Wargent. I'm here with Stephen Moriarty. As ever, how's, hi Steve, how's things? Good, Pete. How are you? I'm very well, thanks. So uh, it's the second in our mini-series on uh, Meet the Experts. So we're delighted to say today we're maintaining the South Australian theme. We had Jordan Elysio (laughs) on last week from Perth Mint, but originally from South Australia. So today, welcome to Con Michalakis from Statewide Super. G'day, Con. How's things? G'day, Pete. G'day, Steve. Good to be here. Been a little while actually. Um, we were just chatting before we came on. I haven't been down to Adelaide for obvious reasons for well, it's a couple of years now. Uh, travel restrictions from Queensland. Uh, now, Connor's your surname suggests a bit of a Greek heritage. So I was really looking forward to uh, coming to Adelaide and experiencing the best Greek restaurants. And I think we ended up having pizza in the end. So uh, you're well known on social media circles as a big. Man United and Adelaide United fans. So firstly, uh, Con, tell us a little bit, um, let's try and skirt over the football because as a long-suffering uh, Spurs fan, you're uh, <laughs> very often you're the only Aussie awake when I'm suffering through uh, another 3-0 <laughs> defeat. So let's let's move on past the football. So tell us a bit about what you do as Statewide Super. I see your role is now CIO, which I'd be interested to understand a little bit about what Statewide does and specifically what you do day to day. Yeah, sure. So uh, I'm going to use some round numbers. So Statewide's a $12 billion super fund, roughly 140,000-odd members in the state of South Australia and Northern Territory, look after local government, government in Northern Territory and small medium enterprise. It was set up in the old days of Statewide Super, which was the old Clark's Union and local Chamber of Commerce. About nine years ago, we merged with local super, and a couple of years ago, we picked up the NT government in a tender. So that's the fund. I've been, I think next week, it's 13 years at Statewide as Chief Investment Officer. What does that mean? It's a fancy title for someone who basically is responsible for the investment portfolios. We have about 10 member investment options. One option is the default option, which we call my super, based on legislation that was done eight odd years ago that has an eight-year track record and basically and that's roughly just over seven billion and it's a multi-asset class like a growth balanced growth type strategy cpi plus three over the long term it has asset classes cash bonds equities unlisted property unlisted infrastructure various absolute returns some credit venture capital private equity We outsource, so most of the assets are managed using best-of-breed external managers, not internal. We do run some internal money in terms of term deposits. We have two direct assets, Adelaide Airport and Flinders Ports. And finally, the what are we? We determine asset allocation strategy, foreign currency hedging. Obviously, when you put your money offshore, you've got two decisions. You've got to buy the assets 
got to manage the foreign currency exposure. And that's the job, just putting the assets together, communicating a message and keeping your convictions based on how you think the portfolio plays out. Yeah, so obviously you're managing superannuation for Australians. So you presumably you must have um, clients ageing all the way from very young people to those coming up to retirement. So the goals of the, the super funds are then to, to manage risk and then deliver a return that's above inflation for people. Obviously, you have to take a long-term focus then if you've got people potentially with quite a long time horizon in the fund. Correct, Pete. So, so for someone who's joined the fund right through to their mid-50s, it could be my super which is the all-weather fund. And as they get older, they're coming up to retirement or burst of surplus, you know, what they call conservative or conservative balance. And even those younger might have a higher growth, which has more equity component. And that goes under advice or intra-fund advice where they come for help. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, uh, Steve, before we came on, I know you had a, a two or three key questions for Con about the what it's like to manage large sums of money. Because I guess one of the key differences between a super fund and, say, an individual is, I guess, you're a little bit more constrained in what you can and can't do. I think as as an individual, within reason, you can almost do anything with your own money. You can go into cash, you can go into stocks or anything else. Um, so, uh, Steve, I, I'll hand over to you because I know you had a couple of questions for Con. Pete and I discussed the eight principles that we've developed and we give that to people as a sort of framework to help them invest and sort of say we split it up into thought principles and into action principles, which is, you know, like before you rush off and put all your money on Bitcoin, you might have a think about these principles. Then when you've done that, you can you then talk about, well, am I diversified, asset allocation, that sort of stuff. But one of the big ones for us, which I don't think gets the view that it should is, or the, the, the importance is market cycles. And we use the CAPE ratio as a way to say in a, on a macro level, is the, is the market, you know, cheap or expensive? And that, in a, in a way, guides the, the personal asset allocation. How do you do that when you're managing like $12 billion? It's not, for example, you know, like as a personal investor, I'm in about 75% cash and I'm quite comfortable with that. Now, I know as a manager that people would go, Con, what the hell are you doing with all of my money in cash? How do you treat the market cycle in those across those portfolios? So let's back up a bit. I, I think because everyone's different, you can you think about the different strategies. So the conservative strategy will be inflation plus one and a half. Now that's going to have a lot of cash, fixed income, senior investment grade credit, low risk absolute return funds, a lot less property, far less equities. The higher growth option is going to have 70 80% equities because that's CPI plus four. So we think of the various products and strategies on offer. So a distinct product, a distinct strategy. So a low-risk option is obviously a lot more defensive characteristics. A high-risk option has more longer-term growth characteristics where you're at, you're at the versus of the market. So we do that, and we set that up in terms of what we call a long-term neutral asset allocation. Now, this gets very, very nomenclature, so I apologise. The strategic yep. allocation. Yeah. Now, the strategic's long-term, but we may say, you know what, in the next three to five years, the strategic might not be a good guy because, you know, if 10-year if bond rates are at less than 1% around the world, I really don't want to be holding 20% in bonds. 
Yeah. So we have a thing called a medium-term asset allocation, which is our guide for the future, and we're adjusting that. Rarely, about a couple of times a year, and then we have tight bands, so the actual asset allocation, because things move, yeah. as close as possible to our medium-term asset allocation. So like your eight principles, it's highly structured. Long-term asset allocation, medium-term, which is our version of one to, say, three to five years, and then actual that is as close as possible to our target medium and long-term is our North Pole. But what does that mean anymore? We get to this thing, you talk about the, the CAPE ratio and interest rates. What is mean reverting? The big discussion points I'm having in myself is I'm long-term valuation type based on my age and my background and how I was taught. But, you know, I'm going to use a basic line. The PE, let's say the long-term KPE, whatever you want to use, is 16 times. Yep. How many times do markets trade at 16 times? They're either at eight or they're 40. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And never at the average. The average is an artificial construct that's constantly moving. And the and the thing that I've been thinking a lot about is what is mean reversion today? What we never had negative rates, we've got negative rates. We've got companies that were created in seven years worth zero being sold for 40 billion that have never made a profit, never made a profit, right? And so if you're an old-fashioned cash flow spinning out profit, what's what does this mean? And I think whether you're a personal investor or a $12 billion investor or a $300 billion investor, there's a couple of things, and you say in your principles, be disciplined, be systematic about your approach, have a structure, try not to get strayed into the short-term noise, and the short-term noise in this current market, it, it's got worse every year. Now, I joined the markets in 92. I think that we are getting access to more data, more information every year, and I think we're actually making decisions that are not better. You raise a good point there, Con, about the, the, the valuation stuff because a lot of people, the, one of the, the, the criticisms I hear at Kate is, and I'm not saying you're criticising it, one of the criticisms is what you pointed out there where people say, oh, well, you know, if you'd have bought it at 15 and sold it at 20, you'd have missed out on all these gains. And it, it leads to what I'd sort of say to people out of the eight principles, we've got a, a sort of holy trinity. The first one is market cycles. So the question you say is, well, where am I in the cycle? How do I allocate my money given the cape at 38 or the cape at 10 or at 8? And what I'd say to people is, what you want to do is it's it's not a, a single point in time. You know, it's sort of like saying, well, if the cape is 10 and I put a million bucks into the market, you know, I make a bucket load of money, the cape's now at 38, but it doesn't say to me, oh, well, at 22, I'm going to sell it, everything, and I'm missing the gains. What I sort of say to people is that's where rebalancing comes in, yeah. right, where you say, I'm going to, you know, where am I in the market? The cape's at 10. Right, I'm going to put 80% into equities and then if the cape hits 25, where we know it gets into strife, then I'm going to start peeling some money off. And so when the cape at 38, you say, well, I started with 100 grand. The market topped at, say, 240. I swing to 20 stocks and 80 cash, where the buy and, and this is my criticism, the buy and hold folks, if the market crashes and they don't get the capital gain because they don't sell it. But that the thing that, you, you as you know, there's this incessant noise about the market went up 1% today. And it's like, well, did you sell? No. Okay, well, the 1% noise. 
It is nice. It is nice. Look, look, the way we think about it is, okay, let's use your 80-20 example. Let's say your strategic asset asset allocation is 80% equities, 20% cash. And you bought that today at the market. What happens when you get to 95-5? Rebalancing was really important. So when do you want to rebalance? Do you want to rebalance on calendar events? No. Once a quarter, once a year, you know. August the 28th every year, let's rebalance. No, no, yeah. this, is not, this is not birthdays, right? This is not anniversary dates. So we think about, okay, 80-20, can you stomach if your 80-20 is 90-10 or 70-30? In other words, give yourself some ranges and play yes. ranges. If your ranges are too tight, you're always rebalancing. If your ranges get too wide, you're losing sight of your long-term goal. And so if they're too wide, then you're going to get into some really big extreme positions and you could get killed. So having tight ranges and managing at the market, what is rebalancing? Rebalancing really is a contrarian strategy at the margin to keep yeah. you out of jail. Gordon, can you just explain to people what you what tight ranges means? Because I suspect a lot of people are saying, what do you mean tight range? Okay, so With tight your- ranges, let's assume we're 80-20 and say, or oh, if I go to 82 I have to rebalance back to 80. Yeah. It's too tight. The market moves, right? So give yep. yourself 90. Give yourself yep. that 10% range. And then you're sitting on your equities might be 85.15. It might get then to 88, right? Or it might get to 90.10. And then it's the big discussion what you should do. You should do what you should always do. Go back, to rebalance it. What do you rebalance it? Do you go to 80.20? Do you go to 85? That's the art. Yes. What I've learned in my career is let it go to the limit and rebalance back to a third or two-thirds, depending on how you see it. But don't be too cute. But what right? you, you mean they con by um, a two-thirds. So if you start at 80-20 and you, you get a good run to, say, 90-10, yeah. what, what we sort of say is, well, if your combined portfolio started at 80-20, you got got hundred grand, 150 grand. Now what I say to people is, well, You've had a really good run. If the cake ratios, you know, getting high, you actually want to say, well, yes, I've got, I've made fifty grand, but I need to rebalance back to seventy five thousand each. So, in other words, go from back to fifty fifty, rather than what a lot of people do is say, no, 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 I'll just go back to eighty twenty, which means I'm still one hundred and thirty, you know, one hundred and twenty five exposed with only twenty five in cash. And look, I because I run product specs. Yep. Low risk, medium risk, high risk. I don't do that. So I, I, I right? But remember, 80 20 is back to neutral. If you're really aggressive, negative about the market, you can go from, and again, I'm sorry about with throwing numbers, 80 20. So you're at 90 10. You could go to 70 30, mm. right? You can go right down to the bottom of the range. Yeah. What I'm saying is careful not going too extremes. You get, you get whipsawed. So if you think the market's gone up a lot, you can go back a bit and let the momentum run. Go back to neutral, or if you think the market's way overvalued, go back to below 80-20. Okay. But what I'm saying is don't get too at – the, at the extremes, you can get too extreme. And and uh, what COVID and the GFC taught us is you wanted to be bites, what Jeremy Grantham, the famous rebalancing when terrified. Yeah. Rebalancing when terrified at the bottom is forcing you to buy. Yep. Rebalancing when exuberant at the top means selling a little bit. Yeah, but, yeah. You know, don't try and trade it too hard. Thanks, Con. That's a really good explanation, actually, of our rebalancing principle there. It almost 
as you said, it forces you to buy at the lows and sell at the highs. And if you can make it systematic, that really helps yeah. to take some of the emotion out of the, the equation, which as you know, when things get volatile, that's when people make uh, reactive yeah. decisions. It's very difficult to do. Hey, Con, I had a, a big picture question for you. Um, as you know, um, I've largely been a property guy over the years, and I totally agree about this issue with too much data. I think people spend way too much time looking at day-to-day and week-to-week trends, and that that's true in real estate as much as it is in equities. I, I heard you once say, Con, that uh, you must be the only Greek guy who doesn't like property. So I, or you're, <laughs> yes. not, you're, not, you're not big on property. Uh, so I, obviously, I, I'm to infer from that that you're mainly a stocks guy. Um, as you know... Um, oh, I have property. I, I think I was raised by a Depression-era... My dad's born in 33, still around. And, at a very, and you imagine blue-collar working class. And so it's drummed into you in a really young age. Don't get into debt, son. Pay off your debt. If you've got a personality, and I think you've got a personality, make sure you have no debts and you've got a buffer. And so I've never actually carried a lot of debt, right? Live within your means and do this. So I had a great, someone told me recently, said the secret to success, if you earn a dollar and spend 95 cents, you're going to have a good life. If you earn a dollar and spend a dollar five, you're going to have a pretty difficult life. And, and I've got property wrong. I've been wrong on property, but you know, I bought a property. Obviously, I lived in, I've lived in Sydney, London, New York, Hong Kong, Adelaide, right? We, we, we owned a property in Sydney. We own our own property house here in Adelaide. We have a beach house, right, for us, but we don't have any other property. In fact, well, I should, that should be enough, Sydney. I think, Con. Yeah, I used to, yeah, exactly. I used to rent a property in Sydney, and it's actually a lot of hassle. Went through the route, but actually managing rental property is tough. So yeah. I've had property wrong, but it's part of an investment portfolio, no doubt. Having yeah. residential property. So I think it was, as, um, I think Morgan Housel who said, you know, we're all, we're all uh, I guess, influenced by our own experiences. And as a POM who, uh, in the boom-bust economy, we went through a huge property boom in the 1990s. And I guess that, it, you know, whether you realise it or not, it does influence your view. And I suppose that, that's certainly been my experience, uh, having moved to Australia yep. and experienced another bull market for property. You've almost uh, answered my question then. So, as you know, I started out my professional career in London, uh, did big four accounting, and there was no real superannuation equivalent in Britain. So there's a lot of people of my kind of age bracket moving into their 40s, and they just don't have any pension at all. Uh, so, I mean, the superannuation system um, in Australia, for all of its um, you know, critics and supposed faults, it's been a tremendous success. Um, I suppose the, I mean, it's, it's obviously forces people to contribute, forces them to take a long-term view, as you said. I mean, it's, it's tremendously tax-effective as well. I suppose uh, my question was, which you almost answered anyway, is is how do you manage your personal investments, if that's not too personal a question? Obviously, no, no. you mentioned that you have uh, your place of residence, potentially a second home or holiday home. Yeah. Do you put all of your other money into super or do you keep some other investments outside uh, of super that you can access? All my super is statewide. All my super statewide. My other investments are predominantly diversified portfolios. And because I'm a chief investment officer at Statewide, I don't like uh, trading direct shares. It's a conflict of interest. So predominantly um, multi-asset diversified or um, like an Argo, which is, you know, sort of a listed sort of company. Investment company, yeah. Cost. Yeah, yeah. And it has a bit of a value bias. Property, 
infrastructure, equities, international equities. I live my values. I want to be diverse. I want to have multiple sources. And, you know, I'm 55 this year, so the super fund's still in the default. The investment portfolio that we have outside of super is long-term for the family, and that works, and no debt. I mean, that's I've been lucky. I've had a good life, so no debt. Yeah, so one of the uh, keen listeners would note that one of our uh, eight principles is what we call the risk hierarchy. It's one of our four thought principles. And um, it's not to say you can't be a stock picker. You obviously can if that's what you want to do. But what the risk hierarchy uh, tells us is that um, for an average individual, an investment in a fund or an ETF that's diversified can give you a bit Perfect. more of a sleep at night factor than trying to pick an individual stock. And as uh, Con mentioned there, as somebody who manages money, you're actually often conflicted and you can't even pick individual stocks, even if you want to on certain occasions because of the, the conflict, you might be conflicted out. I, so. I strongly encourage individuals, take an interest in your wealth. It's like your health. We mm. live in a society where you have super, you have, you've got your property, you've got, if you've saved money outside, pay your debts off when you can, look after your human capital. But more importantly, if you're going to go into the trading game, just understand that this is all-encompassing. So people who day trade or short-term trader or her investors, this is not a hobby. This is a full-time career passion. If you're sick, you're gonna want, you want the best surgeon, right? You want the best surgeon to work on you and fix up your health issues. It's the same with investing. Don't try and operate your own surgeon. Don't try and operate investments if you're time poor or don't have an interest. And if you say, oh, I was at the golf club or I was at the surf place or I bumped into Pete at the airport and I found a, a concept, okay, if you want to do that, play with a little bit. Use that as, as play money. That should not be your core. Your core should be, like you said, in your principles, risk hierarchy, diversification, a plan, a systematic approach, thinking about how you structure this. I'm passionate about that for whether it's a personal retail client or institutional. You've got to think about your risk return, your structure, your processes, your governance, and your ability to execute. So you don't get, you know, in this market, the market's not nice. The market can kill you if you're not orientated to this. Yeah, the, um, Ken Fisher called it the great humiliator. You yeah. Know, and said, and, and indeed it is. And it, you, you raise an interesting point there because we, you know, when you get in, a, in bull markets, as you know, whether it's in property stocks or, you know, art or stamps or anything, NFTs, you know, all this sort of stuff, no one talks about risk. Everyone talks about return. Exactly. You know? I, as I said, I did some presentations this week and I, I'm the guy up the front going, let's talk about risk. And everybody's like, who is this guy? You know, and it's like, look, you can lose a lot of money. You know, yeah. how would you feel if your portfolio fell 40 or 50%? And it's yeah. funny because a lot of people do the same thing. And, and as you know, being in the markets a long time, people say the same thing. Oh, I, you know, I get out before then. And it's yeah. like... No, you wouldn't because no one's ever got out before then. The other thing I've learned, it's whether it's property or equities, is when an adverse event happens, I'm always constantly surprised the people who react badly to it are not the ones who I thought would. Oh, so some of the nervous Nellies that I've known who, who manage and then a bad event, they're actually the same. They're just calm. 
And some people, oh, this is great, this is great. No, no, I'm not nervous. And then the market falls 14, 50%. They do the wrong thing right yeah, at yeah. you, literally. Absolutely. And I've got this amazing one at Statewide. She's a Rhodes Scholar PhD, and she was tracking switches. There wasn't a lot of switches, but it was interesting when we've looked at it in history how people can move money. They picked the three or four worst days to switch at the bottom, and they don't come back. They, they're the ones who run away and say, yeah. oh, the bloody stock market's a casino. <laughs> yeah. And and our job, whether it's Pete Property or shares or advising Steve or more, we're almost financial shrinks now on mentoring. Yeah, Mentoring yeah. Our, our clients, our people, to have a good plan and not make errors. And, you know, you had one of the things called behavioural. It's really behavioural. It's behavioural in the market. But it's actually behaviour at the individual level. Do you understand and how will you react at these adverse levels? Yeah, that's As what we, we talked about with one of the principles being personality because, yeah. and, I, and I used this example earlier, you know, years ago what I said to people was, look, I can guarantee you that if you walk into an advisor's office and you say, look, I've got to, you know, I want to invest $500,000. Sure, you know, take a seat. We'll, we'll run you through the stuff. You know, what's your, you know, you've got to do a statement of uh, account. So you get a risk return profile. How old are you? 55, right? And, you know, blah, 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 right? And what do you feel about it? Yeah, yeah, you know, I'm pretty risk tolerant, you know. Now, I can guarantee you if the market crashes 30 or 40% and that person comes back in and you say, how's that risk tolerance level going? I can guarantee you they'll go to risk averse really, really quick. And so what I've sort of said to people is it's no good saying you're either risk tolerant or risk adverse because the yeah. context and yeah. if you and if I said to you, Con, that's my last 500,000 bucks, that changes completely. Yeah, absolutely. About, you know, about what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Sydney property uh, is, is a really good one. Uh, we talk about mean reversion, right? Equities never revert to their long-term fair value. Property is another one. It's been a discernible, I mean, I know rates are low, but, you know, when I first bought my property in 92 in Sydney, it was three times my salary. And, okay, rates were 12% probably back then, I forget. Yeah. You know, now they're seven to ten times or seven or you know more, Pete, seven or eight. There's no margin of safety here. If you're borrowing that aggressively, if rates go up, and I know if it goes up two or three percent, you can still. If rates do go up in the next four or five years, two or three percent, and they probably will, consumption gets hit because if you're carrying a lot of high personal debt level, it's going to get tougher. Yeah. Um, the other thing I don't understand is in terms of it's got to crack one day. You can't have your wages going up between one and three percent and property prices going up seven or eight. Someone gets priced out of this. Someone gets hurt, and I don't know who. That day's coming, right? And I, so things can go on a lot longer than we know, but these are the, the things that we struggle with. Yeah, so you've actually uh, you've very nicely preempted my next question then. So obviously as a somebody who manages money, you've, you've got to have some big-picture views or macro views that inform some of those decisions. Uh, I guess what I'm interested to hear, and we were chatting just before we kicked off, Obviously, 2020 was a very unusual year, huge amounts of uncertainty. The stock market had the wobbles um, and then bounced back. And then this year, for all of the um, expectations, we've, we've had lockdown restrictions in Australia. I think down your way, Con, uh, South Australia has been relatively unscathed, but um, it's had its own challenges over the, the through the mining boom and beyond with uh, 
Olympic Dam on again, off again, and Wyala and all of that stuff. So just from a macro point of view, and I know things that can change, I appreciate that. What do you um, see coming over the next decade? Do you think we'll come out of COVID with animal spirits intact and people wanting to take risk and invest in new companies or start new businesses? Or do you think people will be shaken by uh, the restrictions and they'll be less inclined to take risk? What do you think? Okay, so my view on this is um, I'm going to go back 100 years ago. We had the First World War, and I'm going to use basic numbers here. 15 or 20 million people died. It was a terrible, the Great War. Then they come out of that and have the, the Spanish flu. There's another 15 or 20 million. Just as many people die in between the war and then the Spanish flu. And then after just all of that terrible period, they just wanted to have fun. Great Gatsby, jazz era, roaring 20s. So now we're two years into this. Arguably 221 from an Australian perspective is even worse than 220. It's going to go on to, I don't know, 222. And then we get back to some sense of normality, obviously vaccine, booster shots. I don't know, right? We just don't know. But clearly Delta, cases go up, hospitalizations aren't as bad. We, we get vaccinated. We get some sort of herd immunity. But in the short term, it's noisy. We've set up tremendous conditions for the roaring 20s worldwide. A really big year because people are going to come out, Australia, the world, US, China, India, and they want to have some fun. They've been locked down. They've had enough. They're going to go and have some fun. So we're going to have those conditions. We're going to have a lot more onshoring, less uh, just-in-time manufacturing, so a lot of more strategic stuff coming onshore, all things being equal, slightly inflationary on the supply side and the demand side. Therefore, interest rates go up. Therefore, the world improves from an economic well-being perspective, but we may come under pressure from financial assets because rates go up. So we'll have a better underlying economic condition, but not the high financial returns. Great news. So I think they're the themes. Two things in our way, and I'll get to you in a minute, Steve. One, there is geopolitical risk. It's rising. So Afghanistan this week, plus China, plus Taiwan, semiconductors, South China Sea, China geopolitical risks are rising and getting worse and we have to deal with that. And there's climate issues that we have to deal with, right? So geopolitical climate and in the backdrop of rising rates, I think the world's going to do well, but there's some big, big picture theme risks out there. Right. Isn't that funny? I'm I'm shaking my head in furious agreement with you, Con. Here's an interesting thing, though. Here's what I want to put to you, and I'd love to hear your response. Yeah, in the 1920s, the Cape ratio was really low, right? It started at about five, and that caused the roaring 20s into 29, right? So that was a boom decade. And as you know, they spent the next decade, you know, being miserable and working it off. If you look at decade-by-decade returns, and I'm talking US because they're the, the elephant in the room, we've had 1990, we had 80 to 90 was pretty good. 90 to 2000 was fantastic. 2000 to 2010 was terrible. 2010 to 2020 was fantastic. At those points, you know that, you know, the Cape ratio was 44 in 2000. In 2010, it was about 15 because we'd had the GFC. Now we're looking at 38. My, and I want to put this to you as, and I get your response. What is the possibility that and, and I agree with your thesis because that's what Pete and I have both been saying. We're, we're moving, not necessarily politically, but we're moving economically back to the left 
because markets can't solve climate change. Only governments can by saying, you guys are going to have to do this. Now, you, the way you do it is your business, but we're telling you this is what's going to go on, right? So that's a, that's a government thing. China and America are separating. With the high level of personal debt that we have here, and as you say, that's going to at some point constrain consumption, which may well lead to, you know, unemployment, blah, blah, blah. So is it possible that we can have a, a roaring 20s economically, right, so we get wage rises and we get inflation and everyone's, you know, actually happy, but asset prices don't go anywhere for 10 years? Yes, yes. I actually think this is what's going to happen. Uh, this is the, op the optimist case, that we're going to have really good underlying economic conditions, but we will have lower and more volatile financial asset yes. prices. Absolutely. Whether it's property, whether it's equity, whether it's yes. fixed income. So the best case scenario is uh, everyone lives better, but the cost of that will come through lower financial returns, much lower financial returns because we've had a tremendous period. In fact, I'll go further from about the 80s to about now. We've had crashes along the way, but financial assets have gone through the roof. Yes. I actually think the next 20 or 30 years they're going to be challenged. Yes. Don't know how many, there's going to be crashes along the way, but I think the nominal return and the real returns will be pretty low and weak in the next decade or two. They'll be positive. So there's, yes. you know, you do well, but you're not going to have the great decade you've just had. That's Remember con, sorry to interrupt you there. Remember it's like the, con the 60s to 80s. You know, we had a yeah, yeah. US stock market where things didn't move around. You know, we may have that type of period again. Um, the big caveat is no geopolit if geopolitical gets out of control, if climate gets out of control, or if inflation gets out of control, then it gets really ugly really quick. I'm saying we'll look through those. We'll probably solve at least two of those, but yep. uh, the world will be okay. In terms of moving to the left, I actually think people want more freedoms. I think they want their governments to set rules and agendas, but I think post-COVID people will want to live their lives. Uh, I, 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 and, and so there'll be a lot more expression of global expression, people travelling and moving, and it'll be interesting to see how governments react to that. Capital will move and people will want to move again. But on that on that point, Con, that's a, an interesting one because it, it's a sort of a bit of a segue. Now, Pete, you can close your ears because I'm going to talk modern monetary theory. <laughs> but what I'm interested in too, Con, is... As you know, guys of our vintage, we were there when Thatcher came in and Hawke and Keating and deregulated, right? And up until then, it was like, son, go to Geelong, get a job at the car factory like your dad and drop dead and, you know, 65, you'll pay off your house and give it to the kids and you go to the sky. In the 80s, you lost defined benefit pensions, you know, and there was much more economic freedom in terms of individual responsibility. So... What I think may happen is what you're saying is people will actually be happier because there'll be more like full employment, uh, whether we're in a universal basic income or a job guarantee, MMT will come in because there's so much high debt levels that we have to, I think we end up saying to people, look, we know that you've got a bucket load of debt but we can't crash the economy. So I'll tell you what we'll do. We're going to, you know, nation build again, right, because we've let our infrastructure run down and we've let our health services run down. We're going to rebuild all that. Now, you're going to have a job 
But in return, you're no longer going to have potentially um, tax breaks for investments. Um, you know, we're going to have higher tax uh, rates. So, so I would say, Steve, I, I, I'm a fairly recent convert to MMT, and I like that the plumbing of it makes sense, that the deficits are just an accounting identity, that yep. they don't matter. Deficits only matter when real real constraints are hit. But the yep. way that the accounting works and the way MMT works throughout the money market and what they say is, is right. That's what I like about MMT. And I, as I said, I'm a late convert. The other thing that MMT provides, it is a positive solution, a green new deal and having full employment and not worrying about whether you're 1% or 3% budget deficits. We just proved in COVID that if you give people money and stimulate them because yeah, yeah. of a health crisis, we, interest rates didn't blow out, we didn't have inflation, and we kept uh, spiralling from a what was a short, sharp recession. We've recovered, but not a depression. And yes. I think the Australian government's going to do it again. Yes, if absolutely. Sydney, Melbourne are locked down until November. Granted, we're doing really world-class vaccination rates at the moment. If we can get to two million a week for the next ten weeks, we're going to we're going to you know get into the teeth Let's of it. Say, yeah. We still need to support small business and people who are locked away through no fault of their own. It this is this is like the emergency ward of a hospital. Someone comes here, they don't say, "Well, you shouldn't have gone speeding." Nor do you yeah. drink. Look yeah. after them. Get them to the other side. That's what I like about MMT. Support, provide, grow the economy. Get out of this. Keep keep it going. Keep people employed. So, for a bit of a sorry, last one on this this theme. But for and this is probably a bit economicy for some. But you probably know Keynes wrote, you know, the economic possibilities for our grandchildren, and yeah. it was about 1930 where Keynes yeah. basically said, "Listen, it's going to be not utopia." But what I think Keynes was mainly saying was, look, we'll have solved the economic problem in terms of saying, well, you know, is it is it supply-side economics? Is it Keynesian economics? You know, Keynes basically said, look, by 1930, we'll have that sort of shit worked out. We'll know what we've got to do, you know, whether it's liberal democracies or social democracies. And so I wonder where if that sort of is aligned to what you're sort of saying. Well, I actually think... Well, Keynes said, you know, we'll be working less, we'll be really rich for our time. I think what Keynes probably would be surprised if he was around today, inequality is world class. Yep. And if anything, <laughs> some people are working as hard as they've ever worked, yes. even though they don't need to. So I don't know, you know. Um, we have seen some stats that say that those who stop working quickly die quickly. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? So people purpose. want to, well, people want a, a social role in life for the it's work, whether it's play or whatever. So I don't know. I don't know, Steve. Can I slip in one more? We've obviously got to get you back to talk about the Kelly criteria, which, as you know, Pete and I, you know, talk about quite a lot. You're, I don't know whether people know, but you're also a, a, a trained mathematician. Is that right? Yeah, yes. I did a math stats degree for my sins and then wasn't smart enough, so I ended up in finance. <laughs> so um, I'm going to be a math teacher. So... <laughs> It, we'll, we will have to get you back and talk to you about, you know, the Kelly criteria because Pete yeah. and I, and, of course, as you know, that's the rival theory to efficient markets yeah. stuff, you know, which I sort of generally give a shellacking to and talk about Kelly a lot. So we will have to get you back at some later stage and, and do a, a, a full session on Kelly because I, like you, I think, I, I find it endlessly fascinating Sure. To, to talk about that stuff because, as you say too, uh, before the podcast, 
it's so contrarian these days, you know. It's not it's yeah. not talked about. Yeah, sounds good. So I still uh, have somewhat efficient markets in me. I always like to assume that people know more yeah. and then back out of that. So right, right. <laughs> Over to yeah. you, Pedro. <laughs> yeah, well, I was I was only conscious because I know that uh, where this leads to, especially at this time on a Friday, that uh, we'll start talking economics, then we'll start gossiping about people in the industry, and then uh, before you know, we'll be up to we'll be up to a three hour podcast. So let's uh, wrap it up there. I think just to add to your point, there come from a European standpoint to somebody who's been over in Portugal and the UK recent weeks. Uh, there are some restrictions still knocking around, not so much on day-to-day living, but actually travel has been disrupted a bit. But uh, we had 63,000 at near White Hart Lane on the weekend, and I, I was interested to see uh, the Leeds fans arriving in Manchester and immediately start brawling. So nature is healing to some degree. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, there's probably more people. There's 75,000 watching Old Trafford, United, Leeds. There's probably more COVID cases at, at the ground than there is in all of South Australia. So there, there you go. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, it's almost made me feel nostalgic for my youth, seeing people punching each other outside the coffee shops. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> things are getting back towards some kind of normal when Leeds fans are starting to fight again. So uh, uh, thank you, Con, for joining today. It's been a real uh, pleasure just to uh, get a scratch the surface, I guess, on your deep well of knowledge uh, on managing uh, billions of dollars of uh, money, a very important job you have there at Statewide. And uh, as Steve said, we'd love to get you back on and uh, tap into some of that mathematical knowledge down the track. So uh, thank you also, Steve, for joining. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week in the next of our episodes in this mini-series on Meet the Experts. Cheers, Con. Thanks, mate. Thanks, guys. It's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know more, you can download a free chapter and extra bonuses from our new book, Low Rates, High Returns. Just visit www.lowrateshighreturns.com forward slash book to download your free copy. The things we've discussed in this episode shouldn't be taken as financial advice and we recommend you reach out to a licensed professional advisor who can help you with your unique circumstances. Stephen and I are both on LinkedIn and Twitter, so do reach out and connect with us. And finally, it'd be great if you could subscribe and leave us a review. It really helps others to find the show. Now take care and invest wisely. Cheers.